Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, the managing director of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and I'm here today with senior fellow at uh, MLI, Ken Coates. Ken is, of course, uh, Canada Research Chair at the University of Saskatchewan and the lead on our project on Aboriginal Canada and the natural resource economy. I'm here today with Ken to talk about the uh, role and uh, influence of Aboriginal people on the development of Canada's natural resource economy. And we'll talk in particular about uh, uh, their portrayal in the media, about uh, their involvement in some of the uh, big natural resource projects that uh, have been so much in the news and many other things besides. So welcome Ken to Pod Bless Canada. Great to be with you. Uh, let's start, uh, Ken, with uh, the media. Now, the the media, when they talk about uh, Indigenous people and their relationship with natural resource projects, the impression certainly that I have is that they're focused principally on the protests that do uh, uh, undoubtedly occur in the Aboriginal world vis-a-vis some of the major projects that are so much in the news, whether it's Kinder Morgan or Energy East or major uh, liquefied natural gas projects, BC Hydro, Site C uh, development in Northern British Columbia. Uh, does, does this focus on conflict between Aboriginal peoples and natural resource development capture what's going on in Aboriginal communities across the country? Well, unfortunately, Brian, it captures only a very small portion of it. Um, in fact, you know, we always know that conflict creates controversy, controversy attracts the media, media gets more hits and people pay more attention. Um, uh, cooperation doesn't attract a lot of, a lot of attention. Um, and in fact, when you have a community that works out a good, strong, viable relationship with a resource company, they negotiate a 10-year project that might be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and they basically get about setting up businesses, doing the training programs, and working on community benefits, that doesn't sound so much like a great story. Um, so what happens is we end up in Canada with this very unbalanced impression. Yes, some Aboriginal people are opposed to certain kinds of development. Some Aboriginal people are opposed to almost all kinds of development. You can say exactly the same thing about non-Indigenous people. There are non-Indigenous environmentalists who want to stop oil sands development, want to stop pipeline development, want to stop tanker shipping. We have, we have those divisions of opinion on both sides of the Indigenous and non-Indigenous divide. And what we are missing out on, and what is really, really it's sort of a sad part for Canada and its assumptions about the natural resource economy, is that Indigenous people have, over the past 20 years, created a very important place for themselves within a really vibrant part of the Canadian national economy. Uh, they have established very good relationships with resource companies. They've created an opportunity for them to be part of the uh, oversight, the environmental management, the environmental reclamation part, part of the process and have gained very substantial community benefits as a result of their collaboration. So we have a very, uh, we need a more balanced portrait. And in fact, if we had a balanced portrait, we'd see that more Indigenous communities are collaborating with the resource sector than opposing it. But that is not the one, that's not the impression that comes across in the media at all. So, Ken, if I'm uh, understanding you correctly, um, you're saying that contrary to what I suspect is a pretty widespread opinion in Canada that no matter uh, what we do on the Aboriginal file, no matter how much money is spent, uh, no matter how many policy pronouncements are made, that, that nothing ever seems to change. I think 
what I'm hearing from you is that over the last couple of decades, say, there's been some pretty significant change in the relationship between uh, uh, Aboriginal communities and the natural resource economy in particular, but uh, uh, larger changes as well. Well, the changes have been absolutely profound. Let's start with the recognition that the changes occurred because Aboriginal people fought for space. Um, in fact, they've been clamoring for a role in the natural resource economy for many years. They wanted to have oversight of projects that give in their, their traditional territory. They wanted to have greater environmental protection. They wanted jobs. They wanted business opportunity arising out of economic activity happening in their backyard, and they fought for it. And people will know, I think, a little bit about things like the, the Supreme Court decision in 2004 that created the duty to consult and accommodate. As of 2004, it is impossible to proceed with resource development in this country uh, without substantial consultation with Indigenous communities and without compensation um, or accommodation for any, any negative impacts that those developments might actually have on Indigenous communities. So we've had now, for the better part of 14 years, a substantial change in the, in the legal foundation of Indigenous involvement. But even before then, we saw Aboriginal communities basically say, we're tired of being poor, we're tired of being marginalized out of the national economy, we're tired of being sort of dependent on government, we want to create our own business opportunity. So we do not have very much of a sense in Canada of how many First Nations in Saskatchewan and, and Alberta um, are very heavily involved in the oil and gas sector. Um, same with Northwest British Columbia. We do not have a good sense of how many mining operations in the Northwest Territories, in Nunavut, for example, have very substantial Indigenous engagement in terms of employment and business operation, uh, operations, resource revenue sharing, um, and substantial community benefit. And so this part has sort of gone under the radar in large part because the corporations have adapted uh, without controversy, they haven't been forced to the wall, they've realized that in fact they have really good reasons for collaborating with Aboriginal folks, really good reasons to cooperate with Indigenous communities, um, and we're not seeing confrontation uh, in, in, in the resource sector um, across the country as a whole. We are certainly seeing it in certain areas, and of course those are very substantial ones and very important ones, uh, but I think it's important for us to realize that Aboriginal people have been getting on with the business of business for quite some time, and I would actually put it even more dramatically and say that we're, we're actively in pursuit of reconciliation in Canada. We're actually looking for places where Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples cooperate and collaborate, where they find common cause and they work together. The best example in Canada is the natural resource sector. There are problems to be sure, but overall we are seeing more reconciliation. Uh, basically, I describe the resource sector as the front lines of reconciliation in Canada than we're seeing any other part of the country. Well, Ken, now, what you've said uh, about the duty to just consult and accommodate brings to mind for me anyway uh, a very important question because my recollection about that Supreme Court decision was that it was not actually a duty that lay on corporate Canada but a duty that lay on the Crown to uh, make sure that there was adequate consultation and accommodation of First Nations interest before uh, natural resource development amongst other things was allowed to proceed. Um, you've spent a lot of time talking about the efforts by corporate Canada to engage with Aboriginal people and to make sure that um, you know their part in the duty to consult and accommodate was honored. But I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that if this duty lies principally on the Crown, 
Um, how are we to understand things like, um, I don't know, the, the, the federal government's decision to ban tankers uh, offshore or to close off the development of the Northern Gateway Pipeline in spite of the fact that uh, there were a lot of uh, Aboriginal communities that had significant interest at stake in those projects, and I could have mentioned many others. Well, the federal government has been inconsistent in its application. Uh, first off, um, the governments have been happy to actually defer the whole process of the Zuni consult accommodate to corporations. And as long as First Nations are content with the arrangements that have been received, they're not going to protest against government, provincial, territorial, or federal, uh, for allowing resource development to proceed. And so companies have basically been in advance of government saying, we have a vested interest in getting these projects off the ground. We want to see them going ahead. We're going to work with First Nations to come up with an agreement. Sometimes that includes government intervention. And you see in British Columbia, for example, the addition of resource revenue sharing on a project-by-project basis brought in by the province of British Columbia as a way of expediting resource development. So governments are involved, governments can be involved, but corporations are sort of the lead enterprise in this. What's fascinating about the, the, the broader question you asked is that the government still can't stop itself from sort of acting on the best interest of Indigenous people as they see it. So, for example, we had a decision about a year ago uh, where the government of Canada decided they would stop oil and gas exploration in the Arctic. Uh, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea is a separate issue. The United States did the same thing off Alaska, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau and, and then-President Obama sort of coordinated this activity. Um, First Nations and Inuit people in the North were really upset about this. Uh, they had been looking at the whole question of offshore oil and gas as being an economic driver uh, for the far North, very concerned and cautious about it. There are very there are certain areas where they did not want exploration to occur. Lancaster Sound, for example, off the north end of Baffin Island. Um, there were there were it was a cautious exploration of oil and gas possibilities, and then all of a sudden it was taken away without any real consultation with indigenous communities. Um, where I was told from folks in, in Nunavut, and the governor of Nunavut found out about the decision two hours before it was announced publicly. Um, similar thing was done with you know, tanker traffic off the northwest coast. Uh, we have indigenous groups who are very upset about that being done without any consultation. Because if, if duty to consult and accommodate means something, it means something in terms of the approval of project, but it also means something in the rejection of project. And if the government is going to take away an economic opportunity, say Northern Gateway or say coastal shipping off the coast of Northwest uh, British Columbia, or uh, West Coast of British Columbia, and then they actually have to talk to First Nations who are going to lose something in the process. In the case of uh, Nunavut and Northwest Territories, um, the decision to ban Arctic oil and gas exploration could easily have cost them billions of dollars in downstream revenue. But you can't do that without consulting with the Indigenous peoples and their governments in the process. So we still haven't got this right. Um, and, and there still is a, a, a bit of a tendency on the part of the government of Canada to act on behalf of Indigenous people, but partly because it ties into their broader agenda about climate change and resource development and environmental protection generally. Um, but it's one of these interesting things where either Indigenous people are at the table, they're part of the consultation process at, at all times, or they're not. Um, and we're still, like I say, it's been 14 years, we're still working out the bugs. And so does this remind you at all of what happened with the Mackenzie Valley pipeline proposal that uh, ended up collapsing a few years ago after over a decade of uh, regulatory study and delay? 
Well, very much reminds me of that. If you look at the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, the debate started in the mid-1970s when a pipeline was being proposed to go down the Mackenzie Valley. And Indigenous people were very concerned about it at the time. You have to realize that in 1975, Indigenous folks had very, very few um, rights to exercise or responsibilities over resource development. Uh, this is before the Constitution and Section 35 on recognizing Aboriginal and treaty rights. It was before duty to consult and accommodate, and governments routinely made decisions in the backyard of Indigenous folks with no consultation and no involvement whatsoever. Um, so that's a very standard part of sort of the history of uh, Northern Canada and the resource frontier in general. Um, the project came back on board in the late in the 1990s. It was under very serious uh, discussion. There's lots of natural gas in the Beaufort Sea um, and, and the, in the Mackenzie Delta, enormous potential. Uh, First Nations became very active players in the process. Um, Jim Prentice was the Minister of uh, Indian Affairs um, and very interested in getting involvement. And in fact, at one point, the, the arrangement would have been that Aboriginal folks would have owned about 30% of that pipeline. They would have received uh, ongoing benefits for the life of that pipeline, which would have been decades in, in, in length. Aboriginal communities have reconciled themselves to their role within the environmental oversight and the management and, and remediation of that particular project. They saw it as a major opportunity to bring income into their communities and keep jobs in the area and therefore keep young people in their traditional territories. Um, what happened was the process dragged out. Um, environmental review delays and delays upon delays upon delays. Eventually the market situation shifted. Uh, the, uh, the corporate proponents looked at this and said, we already spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this, we're not going to do it anymore, and the project was cancelled. Um, and in the process, by, by sort of adhering to sort of what the government had as its environmental strategies at the time, which were not all that precise and, and, and very complicated, um, Indigenous peoples in the Mackenzie Valley have lost probably the major opportunity to create economic uh, sustainability in their communities. Um, and you find some of these communities have been devastated by the loss of opportunity, loss of income uh, that's resulted as uh, because of that decision. So we still in this country have to sort of realize that Indigenous people have a vested interest in the long-term development. They have a vested interest in the environmental sustainability of these projects. They cannot be destructive of traditional territories. And they're perhaps, on my mind, the best arbiters of whether or not a project is going to cause a great devastation in their own backyard. Um, and if they're prepared to see projects go, we should be far more open to seeing them proceed. Now, you know, the uh, the federal government recently announced some changes to the regulatory process by which major projects are approved. And um, they criticized the, uh, the previous government's uh, reforms to the National Energy Board and so on. Uh, which were designed to uh, shorten the um, time that it took to get approval from the NEB for major projects and so forth. My understanding was that those uh, those changes brought in by the previous government were in fact in part in response to consultations with Aboriginal people from the north who were so upset that their uh, opportunities in the Mackenzie Valley were uh, in fact sabotaged by too lengthy uh, regulatory process. Is that is that right? Well, it, it, certainly there's a very strong sense in the McKenzie Valley that the processes were used by opponents of the McKenzie Valley pipeline to slow things down. Um, and people who are opposed to resource projects will perhaps understandably use any, any tool at their disposal. We're certainly seeing this happening with, uh, uh, with the Kinder Morgan pipeline. 
and with First Nations and environmental protesting in that particular project. And we see it with Site C, we see it with all these major projects where opponents will use the tools at their disposal. Um, but of course, this means that a fairly small, potentially fairly small subset of Canadian society is able to stop projects that may well be very much in the national interest. Um, and so we're really struggling to find a sort of a new system uh, uh, that actually sort of takes into account all of these concerns. Uh, the Trudeau government has very strong public and international commitments on climate change. Uh, they've got a very strong sort of series of statements about the uh, whole question of Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal rights. Um, and they very much want to be seen as being proactive in terms of the environmental sort of development. Um, the problem is, is that we keep getting more and more uncertainty in, into these environmental structures and processes. I worry at some point, and I think we may be fairly close to being there, uh, that companies will look at this and saying the cost of doing business in Canada is just getting too great. The uncertainties are too substantial. So yet another reform of the energy and environmental approval processes is not something that's going to bring reassurance uh, uh, to everybody. Uh, they won't be strong enough for people, environmentalists and others who are opposed to development. Uh, they'll probably be too strong for some development interests who want to see things proceed faster. Um, the question really, in all, and I, the irony in all of this, it is likely to be Indigenous involvement in these major projects that will actually see things expedited. Because when you get a substantial number of Indigenous people, not all, all of them, not all of them and not all of them at all times, when you get a substantial Indigenous support for projects, it makes it harder to stand in the way. Well, so that brings us to this, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, uh, this rather fraught relationship that's developing between Aboriginal people and uh, at least some parts of the environmental movement, because I think uh, uh, my impression, for what it's worth, is that uh, many people in the environmental movement see uh, Aboriginal communities as a natural ally because they have this impression that Aboriginal people are opposed to natural resource development. But what you seem to be saying is that given the right conditions, given the right environmental protections, uh, uh, Aboriginal people are very interested in the economic opportunities that development offers. So, so tell us a bit more about how this relationship is evolving between Aboriginal people and the environmental movement. Well, let's just start off with a fairly obvious observation, and that is for the vast majority of Indigenous people, there are no other alternatives already on the table. If you look at where Aboriginal people are located, they live in the, in the mid-north and the, the far north. They live in isolated communities, more than half of the reserves in Canada are in remote, remote areas. Um, the people who are trying to sort of build an economy and build a sustainable lifestyle in those communities are looking for economic opportunities. Um, we do not see very many urban-based companies heading up into northern Ontario to create jobs. We do not see very many Montreal-based firms heading off into northern British Columbia to isolated First Nations communities to create economic opportunity. Um, and so Aboriginal folks are doing like everybody, everybody else does. They're looking for an opportunity to create wealth, uh, to create economic independence, and to create autonomy for themselves and their government. So, so that's a starting, the starting point. Second point is that Indigenous peoples and environmental movements have had sort of uneasy relationships uh, for a long time. The environmental movement, particularly in Europe, uh, took a really solid run and a very successful run at the fur industry in Canada. It started off with the seal trade that actually got expanded beyond that. And Indigenous people are still very, very upset about the, the statements that were made in Europe and in, through organizations like Greenpeace uh, against Indigenous lifestyles and against Indigenous harvesting. Um, and the, the loss of the, much of the fur trade sales into, into Europe was a very significant 
uh, consequence for uh, for indigenous peoples in northern Canada in particular. So uh, this is not a sort of an automatic, you know, wonderful relationship from start, start to finish. For example, again, you will see situations where there are environmentalists with First Nation allies who are very strongly opposed to fish farming on the west coast of, of, of Canada. And they're leading protests, and in fact, they're occupying fish farm operations and what have you. At the same time, most of the fish farms on the west coast actually operate in collaboration with First Nations who are basically earning substantial incomes by working with the fish farm industry, pushing them to sort of be more environmentally sensitive, um, using their involvement in the industry to sort of give suggestions and, and, and make modifications to make them more environmentally secure. Um, so you end up with First Nations on both sides of, of, of these divides. Um, it is wrong for people to assume that Indigenous people are opposed to resource development. Uh, they're opposed to un uncareful uh, resource development or destructive resource development, but in fact they, they see like other Canadians do the need to create jobs and, and, and wealth and opportunity in their communities. Um, but we do get a situation where where the high profile assigned to certain kinds of protests, like the Kinder Morgan pipeline, that put First Nations people front and center, tend to push Indigenous engagement into the background. So Kinder Morgan has good relations with a number of First Nations along the pipeline route. Uh, they're working with the ones where they're not so good right now. Uh, they're, they're developing collaborative collaborations and developing sort of positive relationships. Uh, but you also have First Nations, particularly along the coast, who are strongly opposed. So this relationship is far more complicated than people think it is. It's less precise, it's less obvious, uh, and it's a really important one for us to monitor very carefully and to make sure that we let Indigenous people speak for themselves and do not let any group, whether it's pro-development groups or, or pro-environmental groups, um, speak on their behalf. Indigenous peoples have their own points of views on these issues, and they should be, be, be given careful attention. Well, so, uh, Ken, you've uh, talked uh, uh, in great detail about uh, the relationship between Aboriginal people and uh, corporate Canada, uh, their relationships with different governments, uh, as well as the environmental movement. Um, what are the other barriers uh, or at least issues that uh, we need to think about in unlocking economic growth for Aboriginal people? Well, Aboriginal folks are not in all cases well situated to take advantage of opportunity. Uh, when you have very serious social and economic problems at the domestic level, uh, when you do not have a well-functioning education and training systems, very often resource development comes into a community and there are jobs available, but there are not enough people in the community ready to take them on. So in the successful implementations of resource projects, we're seeing very good training programs. They work with high school kids, they work with college and university students, they have excellent training programs after high school for indigenous, and indigenous workers, and they work very collaboratively. And we also have a situation where, and this is kind of an interesting one, where one of the challenges that's emerging for Indigenous people is the challenge of managing prosperity. Some of these resource projects are very large. Uh, they involve tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars of assets transferred from the corporations and from government um, into, the, into the First Nation, in, Inuit and Métis communities. Um, these communities will now wrestle with the challenge of how you distribute the money. Do you actually allocate the money on a person-by-person -person basis annually? Do you invest the money for long-term economic development in the community? You build up other businesses, build up infrastructure, invest in education and culture. Uh, these are huge and major decisions. 
And we are getting some very successful communities um, that have, have very substantial employment. They've got lots of businesses under development. Uh, they're having a really positive, destructive effect on the, on the resource economy generally. And we have others who are getting left, well, far behind. And so the challenge really, I think, in, on the resource sector, and this is where government plays a really important role, is that government has to be there well in advance of the resource economy itself. That when you start seeing development happening, as it's happening in northern Ontario, the Ring of Fire and other, other areas, government has to be in there early working on um, education, improving the educational outcomes, improving the sort of social outcomes, and getting people ready for the, the resource economy that's coming toward them. Uh, if we do, don't prepare communities very well in this regard, then they'll miss out on the opportunities, and they'll miss out on the jobs, and they'll miss out on the economic benefits that, that, come, that come with those developments. Um, and and we, we also sort of recognize that, that each one of these developments, as, as is the case in non-Indigenous communities, is a matter of great debate inside the community. It doesn't matter which community you're talking about. If you're talking about a community of a thousand people is looking at a gold mine that's opening up 50 kilometers away, not everybody in town will be in favor of that. Some will be opposed, some will be strongly opposed, some will be strongly in favor. Um, and the communities go through intense debates, um, making sure that they do participate in this economic activity, that the environment is protected, that they have an appropriate role. Those are very, very tough decisions, and those, those conflicts and those, those debates are, are working their way out in hundreds of communities across the country every year. And uh, would, would it be right to say that um, uh, Aboriginal communities themselves contribute somewhat to the uncertainty around natural resource development precisely because communities are divided within themselves and therefore it's hard for them to reach uh, a, a complete, uh, settled answer within their communities when faced with natural resource opportunities? Oh, that's absolutely true. And, and we shouldn't expect anything else. Uh, we don't expect it from the non-Indigenous population. Uh, so when Energy East was being discussed, um, Energy East did not collapse because of Indigenous protests. There were some Indigenous concerns, and there were strong concerns, to be sure. Um, but actually, it was Montreal and Toronto. Uh, who made it unequivocally clear that they were not prepared to see those by pipeline go through their backyard. Uh, it was non-Indigenous communities that were upset about resource development and infrastructure development that sort of took the wind out of that sail. And so, so the fact that there are, there are these tensions within communities is not a surprise. It happens in all communities, uh, whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous or mixed or mixed populations. Um, and then what we need to do, and, and this is what actually Indigenous communities are doing really well for themselves, and they need to have these consultations and conversations well in advance. You can't wait until the company comes in and says, we want to start a mine tomorrow. Uh, these are conversations that communities need to have ahead of time. Where do they see their economic opportunity developing? Where do they see the mines opening up or the forest operations or the, or the, the, the hydro projects going? Um, and they need to sort of set out the parameters ahead of time. What we're finding is that when Indigenous communities are supportive of resource development, when they're actually looking forward and looking for opportunities, uh, they attract companies to them. When they are having big debates and they aren't sure about how things are going, companies will look for other other opportunities. Uh, one of the things about Canada is we're a large, diverse country with an awful lot of resources, and the companies are going to go to places where they see both economic opportunity but also a, a substantial level of, of local support. 
Um, and so we are seeing a, a stronger emergence of indigenous involvement in the resource economy, some signaling going on about communities that are ready and open for development. We're seeing areas like the Ring of Fire that, that in Northern Ontario that five years ago looked like nothing would ever get built. Um, seeing more communities getting more comfortable with some of the resource activity that's going on, working collaboratively on infrastructure development so that if a road's going to be built for a mine, it also serves the Indigenous community as well. And so we're seeing an awful lot more of that kind of sort of forward-looking collaboration and conversation. Um, but, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about this that's really important is that Indigenous peoples have very, very long memories. And their memories go back into the 19th century and early 20th century. They remember the, the sort of very rapid development that took place in the 1950s and 1960s, where Indigenous concerns were basically given no attention whatsoever. Um, and there was no systematic effort to make sure that Aboriginal people got involved in the, in the resource economy or got jobs or got community benefits out of it. Um, and so when a community is considering a mine, if their memory of a mine that was opened in 1965 is unhappy, and if they're still living with the fallout from a poorly designed mine or a poorly operated mine that started, and this is over 40 or 50 years ago, um, you can see why they were reluctant to get excited about a new mine. And so the resource sector and governments of Canada and non-Indigenous Canadians have to understand the reticence and have to make it absolutely clear that the new resource economy is not like the old one and that Aboriginal people do have a vital and vibrant role to play in everything from the planning to projects and the development of the projects are went through the remediation of the projects after they've wound down. Now, my experience of the business world is that if you want to be taken seriously by the business world, you know, who often are willing to put big money on the table in order to, you know, build a mine or a plant or whatever their project is, uh, the business world takes most seriously other people who are, who are willing to put skin in the game people who are willing to risk their own money, just like the business sector is willing to risk theirs. Um, is that why you've often said that uh, we have to remove the barriers to Aboriginal people raising the capital to be able to be full partners in natural resource development? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the next, we're, it's so interesting looking at the transition and how much they're, um, how much they're changing over time. You know, because again, go back 20 or 30 years and Indigenous participation was minimal. We're now getting into the situation where we have fairly substantial Indigenous equity investment. As new projects are emerging, pipeline projects, railway projects, infrastructure projects, um, hydroelectric, uh, solar power projects, we're seeing Indigenous peoples taking on very active equity positions um, and investing their own money um, or taking an equity position in, in favor of, of sort of direct financial compensation. And so when you get equity investment, you get the best possible return uh, from a resource project. And everybody clearly would sort of want that to, to happen. Um, here we have some both opportunities and challenges. Um, the challenges are, of course, that First Nations uh, in particular, their major asset is the land, their reserve land, uh, which they cannot use for collateral for irregular loans. So we're having to work out very different financial instruments that will actually allow Indigenous people to borrow money so they can get actively involved in the resource economy. On the positive side, we're now getting more and more First Nations that actually have money, and sometimes substantial amounts of money. They've signed the modern treaty. They have a treaty land entitlement settlement on the Prairie West. Um, they have received resource revenue sharing returns. And maybe they made investments 20, 30 years ago in urban real estate, and they've got several million dollars to invest in a new project now. 
So we are now seeing indigenous communities that have money to invest in their own backyard, but increasingly also money to invest the further appeal uh, with other indigenous communities and with other non-indigenous communities on profit-making uh, development projects. This is actually getting extremely exciting uh, because you're now going to have a situation where Indigenous folks are, are starting to own very substantial parts of the Canadian economy, which is exactly as it should be. Um, they've been here for a long time. They've got a long-standing history of, of being involved in the economy through the fur trade. They're, they're using their new legal powers and the new financial resources to get involved. So if you go into places like Saskatoon or Whitehorse or Calgary or Vancouver, you will see an increasing number of buildings and, and residential housing complexes, um, business operations that are owned by indigenous communities. And to the point where it's no longer all that remarkable. We sort of just go, well, of course, it's on First Nation land, it should be First Nation owned. Or it's nice to see them investing in the community more broadly and making money along with other people. We're now starting to see those substantial financial returns uh, coming to indigenous communities. And we're going to have to get used to, and I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about this, get used to from much much more broadly spread and broadly shared indigenous prosperity. Um, it's not going to be handled perfectly. It's not going to be shared equally across the whole country. Uh, a First Nation based in the city of Vancouver has much greater economic opportunities than one in an isolated flying community in the Northwest Territory. And so it is going to be in balance as we sort of go forward. But as Indigenous peoples get equity investments in these major projects, they get substantial returns that most of them are reinvesting in other economic uh, opportunities, building sort of an, uh, a portfolio of, of investments and revenue producing opportunities that will help them for generations to come. Well, on that uh, positive note, uh, which helps to explain why you have become so identified, Ken, with the uh, idea that the greatest challenge facing many Aboriginal communities is not how to man no longer how to manage poverty, but how to manage prosperity. We're going to uh, wrap up this particular uh, version of the MLI podcast, Pod Bless Canada. I'm going to thank Ken Coates, MLI's uh, Monk Senior Fellow uh, and uh, also Canada Research Chair at the University of Saskatchewan for such uh, an insightful and um, thoughtful uh, discussion of the role of Aboriginal people and the position that they can occupy in the future of the natural resource economy here in Canada. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, Managing Director of the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, and I thank our audience for listening to this broadcast of Pod Bless Canada.